Thank you, student choir, for leading us so well in worship this morning. I have come to just really love and appreciate that hymn, I Need No Other Argument. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. What a beautiful depiction of that gospel narrative of which each of us have been saved through Christ and by Christ. Uh, I'd like to encourage you, friend, if you are not in the habit of actively participating and listening to the preaching of God's Word by taking notes to do that. We provide for you every week in our worship guide a place for you to take notes. This is a wonderful place for you to uh, reflect upon the preaching of God's Word, not only as it's being preached, but also throughout the week. It's also a lovely way for you to avoid the temptation of falling asleep during this most magnificent exposition of God's Word. If you take those notes, you'll stay, you'll stay wide awake the entire time, right? Hey, I want to say a big thank you to a host of you that um, got the emergency text this morning and dropped what you were doing to come up and mop Lynn called at like 7 o'clock this morning and was frantic, and I could hear the water pouring out. Of course, I have no idea how you turn off the water in the church building. Uh, we'll have to find out how to do that. And we, we got that done, and I made my way up here around 7.30, and by the time I got here, a few people were already here mopping, and Lynn was standing in the boys' bathroom just squeegeeing water uh, into the drain, and a, and a host of you showed up this morning to help serve in a most marvelous way. So thank you so much for, uh, for serving your church in that way. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, as we continue our way through this great book. Exodus chapter 2 will be in verses 11 through 22 this morning. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and we continue to see God's marvelous purposes at work. And here in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, we learned this morning that God's purposes will be accomplished. God's purposes will be accomplished despite our failures and our impatience. God's purposes will be accomplished despite our failures and our impatience. The narrative today continues what we've been seeing over the course of the last several weeks. God, in a most unusual way, has brought about or is bringing about ultimately the redemption of his people. And we've already seen that God's purposes absolutely cannot be stopped. Pharaoh tried to stop them three times in chapter one. And then we come down into chapter two and that narrative of Pharaoh trying to stop uh, the, the will of God continues, and we come to this text today. And not only do we see Pharaoh in some ways seeking to stop the will of God, but even Moses in his own impatience seeks to get ahead of where God is, if you will. And through this narrative, the Word of God reminds us that God's purposes will indeed be accomplished despite our failures and our Impatience. Look what happens at the very beginning of this narrative in chapter 2. In verses 11 through 15, we learn that Moses' impatience leads to further exile. 
Moses' impatience leads to further exile. It's like, wait a minute, this narrative is not headed in the right direction. Listen at what takes place beginning in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on, his, on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. He killed the Egyptian, and he hid the man in the sand. And the next day comes about, verse 13, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And Moses said to the man that was in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Why do you strike your own brother? And he answered, that is the Egyptian, sorry, the Hebrew answered back to Moses. Notice these words, who made you a prince and judge or lawgiver over us? Do you mean to kill us as you did the Egyptian? Uh Uh-oh. Moses was afraid and thought, surely this very thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses' impatience is going to lead to further exile away from God. We already know from the very beginning of the narrative in chapter 2 that there is something unique about this child Moses. You might remember Exodus chapter 2 verse 2. The Bible tells us that there's a woman who conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a good, a fine child, a child upon Uh, whom the favor of God was resting. We already know there's something very unique about Moses. So we're not expecting this turn in the narrative. We're not expecting that the one upon whom God has looked with great favor is now going to appear, if you will, to fall out of favor with God by finding himself further in exile, further removed from what we perceive to be God's purposes in his life. And notice how quick this narrative progresses. We ended last week, and Moses was just a young man, young boy, maybe three to five years old. He's been delivered back to Pharaoh's home, somewhere between three to five, six years old. And now all of a sudden, notice what the text says. Moses is a grown man, right? In fact, we know that he is, he's 40 years old. We know this from the New Testament. So here Moses is is grown up, he's he's a grown man, and notice what the Bible says, he went out to his people. This word went out is going to be used on a number of occasions, but shows this connection that Moses has with his own people. If you'll notice just real quickly in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 24, 
the writer of Hebrews picks up on this narrative of what's taking place with Moses, and he writes these words by faith. Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, Pharaoh, in some measurable way, has rejected all the pleasures that are his through his Egyptian upbringing. Notice verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This is derived from an understanding of this text. Moses has a deep care and concern for the people of God, for his own people, for the Hebrews. And so the Bible begins here with this narrative and depicting Moses as one who has great compassion and great love for his fellow man. He is going out to them, if you will, to care for them. And as he goes out to care for them, as he goes to them, he sees their burdens. He comprehends and understands the difficulty that they find themselves in, but he recognizes a most unusual circumstance. There are these two men that are fighting, one an Egyptian and one a Hebrew, and the Egyptian, using his might and his power against those who were oppressed, finds it okay to, to strike, to literally kill this, um, this uh, or to fight against this man. So Moses himself finds it okay to kill this Egyptian man. So Moses strikes the man, literally killing the man, and then he takes the man and he hides him in the sand. It's the most unusual turn of events. Here is God's favored servant, now guilty of what we're going to find out later in Exodus of murder, of killing this other man. And so tension is rising rather quickly in this narrative as to what is going to happen. Surely Moses will pay with his own life for what he has done. Even though Moses has been raised by Pharaoh's daughter, undoubtedly would have been very known by Pharaoh himself, but what does the Bible tell us takes place? Moses fears. And by the way, we're going to see this use of the word fear continue to be used throughout the narrative of Exodus. I want you to pay very careful and close attention to what is taking place. We've already seen the word fear used. Thus far, who has feared in the book of Exodus? The midwives have feared whom? God. But notice now what's taking place in Moses' life. Does it appear that Moses is having a healthy fear of God? Or is Moses' fear now misdirected? Moses' fear is now misdirected. Why? Because Moses in his impatience... I'm sure there's none of us this morning who stands ready to cast that first stone at Brother Moses. We understand from this narrative that Moses' Moses's people, they've been in slavery now for 400 years. We've read through Exodus chapter 1. We've seen the difficulty of that enslavement, have we not? It was brutal. It was difficult. 
It was burdensome. So in many ways, from a worldly perspective, we think, well, Moses was for sure in the right. Here, here's this mean, ugly oppressor that has been oppressing these poor, wandering, nomadic people. Surely Moses was in the right to take things into his own hands. But notice how the text of Scripture defines this. The text of Scripture paints Moses as one who is being impatient, if you will, waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled toward God's people. You might remember all the way back in the book of Genesis, God had already told the nation, he had already told Abraham, the people of God are going to end in slavery for 400 years. Israel already knows, if you will, the people of God already know, the sons of Jacob already know what their plight in life is going to be. They already know that part of God's providence in their lives would be that they would find themselves enslaved for 400 years. I don't want to be enslaved for 40 seconds. 40 years, much less 400 years. There's not one single person seated here today who would desire that. So it's easy to maybe see that what Moses is doing is in the right. Thank you, Moses, if you will, for standing up for your people. But this isn't how the Bible depicts what Moses has done. So he goes back outside the next day. And this time it's a different scenario, but yet a lot of similarities. Two men are fighting again. This time it happens to be two Hebrews. And Moses seeks to intervene into the situation. But what happens? One of the Hebrews looks at Moses and says to Moses, Excuse me? I'm sorry. Who has died and left you in charge? But notice specifically how the text of Scripture says this. Who made you a prince and judge or lawgiver over us. Who has placed you in the position of Yahweh, if you will? Who has placed you in the position of God over us? We already know the way in which the text turns out, do we not? This text is prefiguring for us exactly what Moses himself would indeed be and accomplish on behalf of the people of God. He would be to them a prince and a lawgiver. He would be for them a deliverer. But notice how the text of Scripture is painting what Moses has done. God and his wisdom has a timetable for everything in life, and it is the temptation of the human heart to want to get ahead of God at times. It is a temptation of the human heart to grow impatient, to not want to wait on the promises of God to be fulfilled, and so we take things into our own hands, and when we do that, we superimpose ourselves into that place of prominence and God-likeness, thinking that we 
have this responsibility to act when God himself has not or is not acting. Friend, I don't know what situation any of you at this exact moment might find yourself in. But I do know as we read this canon of Scripture, as we read the Word of God, there are examples after examples, multiplied after examples, of people who find themselves in great difficulty and heartache and life. And the temptation of our human heart when we find ourselves there is to wonder, where is God? But notice what this text of Scripture is shouting out to us. God is still reigning. God is still directing the course of human history to accomplish His will. And this text for sure reminds you and me to be patient, to wait upon the Lord, to trust in His good and kind providences, even when we find ourselves in those providential moments of increased difficulty. So Moses is afraid. His fear is misdirected. And because of Moses' fear, notice what happens. Moses flees flees, and ends up where? In the land of Midian. Now, isn't this an interesting designation? Moses ends up in a land of Midian. We know a few things about the land of Midian. Number one, we know that the land of Midian is not God's promise to his people, right? This is not Canaan land. This is not where God has intended for his people to dwell. This is not the land of promise. This is not the land or the place that God has for his people to find their rest, if you will. This is not a land of God's promise toward his people. We know that. Why? Because we know what the land of promise is. It's Canaan. What else do we know about Midian? We know that there was a Midian, a Midian, a Midianite who came from Abraham. You might remember with one of uh, Abraham's other uh, rendezvous with another lady, Moses has a son, Midian. And more than likely, this is the land of which this Midian has dwelt. God's promises through Abraham come from Abraham toward Isaac and then toward Jacob, right? Not in another path, not toward Ishmael. From Abraham to um, Isaac and to Jacob. So this is indeed a, a son from Abraham. So in some measurable way, Moses has indeed found himself 
in a foreign pagan land, yet a foreign pagan land that finds its birth even from Father Abraham. So in some way, this is going to be a land of care and providence and of God's kindness toward Moses. But notice how verse 15 ends. Moses finds himself down in Midian by a well. Notice that text again. By a well. What do we find in a well? Water. I'm going to let that hang there for a few moments. We find water at a well. Moses is again, or for the first time, finding deliverance by water, through water, by the source of water. So Moses, in his impatience, finds himself again further into exile. He finds himself further away from from God. He has acted not on God's time, but on Moses' time. But notice what happens now in verse 16. In verse 16 through verse 20, God's purpose and deliverance is reaffirmed. God's purpose and deliverance is going to be reaffirmed to Moses. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds, they came down and, well, they were mean and rude and ugly to these young ladies, and they drove them away. But Moses stood up, and notice what the Bible says Moses does for these seven daughters. He saves them. And he watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so quickly today? And they said, an Egyptian, notice what the text says, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, where is this incredible man? Why have you left him alone? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses, firmly, having firmly decided, being fully convinced in his mind, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. God's purpose of deliverance is reaffirmed in this text of Scripture as God takes Moses' impatience, as God takes Moses' failure, and he redirects them to accomplish what his ultimate purpose is in life. And so we learned something about this group in Midian. They are a 
There's a priest, uh, a, a priest of Midian here, a, a pagan priest. We're going to learn that this pagan priest is going to become Moses' father-in-law, Ruel, what we ultimately come to learn throughout the rest of the narrative in Exodus as Jethro. So there's a priest among the people of Midian. He's got seven daughters. That's interesting that the text would tell us that he has seven daughters. Numbers is going to tell us that he also had one son. But he's got the, the seven daughters, a statement of, of perfection, of, of favor. And these, these daughters have come down to draw water, as would be their everyday responsibility to bring back to their father's flock. But there's a problem. A group of nasty, mean shepherds arrive at this well along the same time, and they are impatient themselves that a group of women are occupying the the well, and so they shoo the ladies off. But Moses stands up to do what? Save them. Don't miss it. The Bible says, Moses saves them and watered their flock. See, friends, the text is yet again imaging for us what God will ultimately do through his servant, Moses. This is a type of what God would ultimately accomplish for the entirety of the nation of Israel. But don't miss it. To whom is Moses in the context of this story providing salvation? Is he providing salvation to a group of people who are part of the people of God? Or is Moses providing salvation to a group of people who are disconnected from the people of God? The Midianites are indeed pagan people. They do not worship Yahweh. They are not part of God's covenantal group of people. Now it is true that by the time we get to Exodus chapter 18, Jethro is going to make this acknowledgement of the greatness of God and he is going to sacrifice ultimately to Yahweh. But at this point, um, the Midianites are not part of the covenant people of God. And yet, to whom is God offering salvation? This text reminds us, friends, that it has been true from the very beginning of God's creation of humanity that God desires all people to know His greatness and His might and His power. God desires that none should perish but that all should come to faith in Christ. God has set his desire upon all people for them to come and know this great God and King. And this narrative reminds us of the very missionary heart of God, that God is indeed pursuing people from every tribe and nation and tongue who will one day stand around the throne of God and offer him eternal praise for the salvation he has provided. Moses provides salvation for these pagan foreign ladies that images ultimately what he will accomplish on behalf of the entire community of God's people, the nation of Israel. So he saves them. And then notice how the text images this 
again down in verse 19. So they come home. Ruel says, how in the world are you here so quickly? Moses provides salvation, and now how do the ones who have received salvation perceive of what has taken place? We get direct speech here now from these seven daughters of Ruel. How do they understand what has just taken place at this water well? They too understand that what has taken place is a sign of God's providence. They too reflect on what has taken place. Notice what the text says. They cry out, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherd and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Turn over quickly to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. Here's this great narrative in chapter 18 of how Moses is reflecting upon what God has ultimately done himself. And listen how Moses defines to his father-in-law what is taking place. Exodus chapter 18, verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in that way, and how, notice what the text says, how the Lord had what? Delivered them. As you take time to read through the narrative of Exodus, pay attention to how Moses uses these words, saved and delivered. And be reminded that God is a saving God at His very nature and core. Now I want to take a time out and speak to you young men who are ultimately desiring to be married one day and tell you that this image here in Exodus chapter 2 defines for you a perfect path of how you can find a woman one day. Notice very clearly what the text says. You should, in order to find a nice, beautiful, lovely, godly woman, you should go to her daddy and offer to do things like wash his car for him and vacuum out his truck and offer to go to the store for him and, and do shopping for him and whatever else he desires. This is the pathway of getting a wonderful, godly wife for you young men. So take very careful, close attention to what the text is saying here, and I will be glad to make any appointment with any of you after church is over. God has provided salvation and deliverance. God is redeeming people. Notice what this pagan man does now. Go find him. Bring him to me. Let us extend a measure of hospitality to him. Let us communicate our thankfulness to him. Call him and, and let him come eat bread with us. So what does the Bible tell us in verse 21 and 22? Our Bibles read here in the ESV, and Moses was content to dwell. But this verb communicates much more than Moses being content to, do, to dwell. 
It communicates great intentionality on behalf of Moses, that, that Moses spent time pondering. Moses spent time thinking through. Moses spent time counting the various costs, if you will, as in terms of the proposition that has been made for Moses to come and dwell among the Midianites. And so at that point in which Moses is firmly convinced in his mind, but we can't help but know that Moses, in his own doing, doesn't make the right choices. Moses, in his own wisdom, doesn't step in the right direction. So we can't help but notice in this text in verse 21 of God's providential care and direction and guidance in Moses' life now as Moses seems to be coming to that point where he's like, okay, God, I understand I've messed up, but you have so marvelously provided for me even in my failures. Moses seems to be at that point in his life where he's willing to submit his direction to God's guidance. And so the Bible says, Moses was content. Moses is at a place of God's direction now, and notice God's favor toward Moses. And Moses submitting his life to God, and Moses being content, God is now going to make provision for Moses, and given to Moses a wife, Zipporah, and notice verse 22, and what does it remind you of? She gave birth to a son. Come back to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7. And what do we learn about the people of God in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7? They are going to live out their lives as God had directed and intended from Genesis they are going to be fruitful and multiply. And notice what the narrator, what Moses is telling us, what the author of this text is reminding us here in Exodus chapter 2 by saying that Moses now has a wife and that wife now has given birth to a son. There is nothing that is going to stop God's purposes in providing redemption for his people. God is and will be faithful to his promises to his people. And Moses is going to live out that which God has directed. He is going to be fruitful and multiply. So she gives birth to the son and he calls and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses' son, his name, will be a forever reminder that Moses in his impatience and failure was further led away from God and down into slavery. But God 
and that slavery. God and that binding does what God always does. He provides salvation in a way that always reminds us that unless God comes through, I will forever be stuck in this terrible situation. And see, friends, this is ultimately what God has accomplished for us through the person of Jesus Christ. God reminds us in the sending of His Son, Jesus, that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and there was absolutely, there is absolutely nothing that we could ever do to obtain salvation for ourselves. But God has found us in that weakened state. God has found us in that state that is so far and away from Him, and there... God, through Jesus, has provided salvation for us so that at no point in our life can we ever boast that we in and of ourselves have provided ourselves salvation. God is providing salvation for Moses and depicting it in the most beautiful way that reminds us that only God and God alone, and no one else, and not even your own self, can provide salvation for you to be placed into a right relationship with God. And friend, Moses' life and Moses' narrative is the narrative of all of our lives apart from Christ. For apart from Christ, we are impatient. And apart from Christ, we are failures. And apart from Christ, we do want to accomplish everything in our own might, in our own power, and in our own strength. But God through Jesus, God through his deliverer, is saying loudly to you and me, there is nothing you can do to obtain your own Salvation. But notice what Hebrews chapter 11 tells us Moses has learned. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Moses ultimately learns that a relationship with God is far greater than a relationship with this world. Moses learns that living one's life in relationship to God through Christ is far more glorious and beneficial than living life in the greatest pleasures that this world has to offer. Listen at how the writer of Hebrews reflects on Moses' faith. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for his 
reward. Friend, to whom or to what are you looking today? In terms of antiquity, Moses found himself living at just the right time. Moses was living at a time in which the Egyptian worldview and the Egyptian influence and the Egyptian might and the Egyptian wealth was at its height. Perhaps Egypt was never stronger than the time period in which Moses himself is living. They not only had military might and military power, power, they also had incredible earthly riches for that day. There was no one more wealthy, more prominent than the nation of Egypt. They had everything. And, and Moses, it wasn't that just Moses was an Egyptian. It wasn't that Moses was born to an Egyptian family and he lived somewhere in the vicinity maybe of the shadow of one of the Pharaoh's palaces. No, Pharaoh himself grew up right in the very heart of the pleasures of everything the world had to offer at that time. There was nothing that Pharaoh could, uh, that Moses could have conceived of desiring that he did not have. He had the greatest education. He had the greatest access to wealth. He was exceedingly provided for and protected. There's nothing Pharaoh, Moses did not have. And yet, as the writer of Hebrews looks upon Moses' actions, from killing the young man, to hiding him, to fleeing to Midian, to providing salvation for the women at the well, what does the writer of Hebrews tell us Moses was ultimately, ultimately aimed toward? Faith in Christ. Is Jesus your goal today, friend? Is Jesus truly sufficient enough for you? We, like Moses, live in the best of the best of all times. There's never been a time when more world wealth was available to any one of us. For those of us who have the pleasure of living in this most incredible country, we live in a country that is the strongest country in all of, all of the world. We have every measurable pleasure at our fingertips. And the question for your heart and for my heart is who will you pursue today? What will you pursue today? Will you be a Moses because of God's work in your life and be willing to look at all of these earthly pleasures and turn your back on them and pursue Christ no matter what it costs you? Or will you look at the pleasures of this world and allow their beauty and their might and their prosperity to turn your heart 
away from God that will ultimately lead you to an eternity separated from God and Christ. Hear Jesus, you can't serve two masters. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have extended to us through Jesus. We thank you that through this narrative, God, you have shown us of your heart and your desire to provide redemption. That ultimately, God, you have provided so well for us through the person of Jesus. And we ask, God, for that same redemption to permeate our hearts and our lives in such a way that we would reject the pleasures of this world and pursue earnestly the pleasures in Christ. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and respond and reflect upon God's word? How are you being impatient today and waiting on God's timing? Perhaps there's, perhaps there's a big decision weighing in your heart, in your life, a, a job transfer, a decision about a new job. Marriage. Your own future. College. Where and when to buy a house. How do you see evidences of God's providence in your life in those areas? How do you see evidences of your patiently waiting for God to give clear direction in your life in those areas? Are you patiently waiting on Him? How are you demonstrating trust in God's good providences toward you? Friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, perhaps you're here and you know that you enjoy so much the pleasures of this world to the extent that your mind and your heart are constantly guided by those things are constantly led by those things to the extent that you don't find yourself thinking on the things of God, reflecting upon the Word of God. And you know, like these seven Midianite daughters, that apart from God's kindness toward you, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. And today, your life desperately needs to be saved from your own sin. Would you trust in God today? Would you trust in Christ today? Would you believe in Jesus today and be saved? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. As we stand and sing, maybe you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. Myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front if 
during our time of singing, you have questions about what that might look like, please feel free to come forward and talk to one of us. We'd be glad to share with you. But friend, you don't have to come talk to Travis or I. You can turn to someone seated next to you. For there are plenty of people in the context of this building seated around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you. That indeed the truths of this text might resonate in your heart and your life. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you, we ask that our responses might be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.